This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anstey Harris, welcome to Better Reading. Hello. So you are all the way in the UK. Isn't technology amazing? And I'm here in Sydney, Australia, and um, I feel as though we're already best friends. <laughs> <laughs> Anstey and I have had a, a pre-chat just to make sure that everything's working. So Anstey teaches creative writing for Canterbury Christ Church University and in the community with her own writing company, Writing Matters. She has been featured in various literary magazines and anthologies. She's been shortlisted for many prizes and won the H.G. Wells Short Story Award. She writes about the things that make people tick, the things that bind us and the things that can rip us apart. In 2015, she won the H.G. Wells Short Story Prize for her story, Ruby. In novels, Anstey tries to celebrate uplifting ideas and prove that life is good and happiness is available to everyone once we work out where to look. I really like that. Happiness is available to everyone once we work out where to look. And it's usually I feel us. like I, I want to write that down and put it on a piece of paper above my computer for while I'm writing my third novel. Yeah, Just remember, because that is the point. That is the point, yeah. And usually we have to look inside of ourselves. She's based in the seaside, as I said, in the UK. And the sea, she's based by the seaside. She's not actually in the sea. She's actually... I'm quite often. <laughs> quite often, are you? Isn't it cold? It's really, it's really cold. In Australia, you would not even believe how cold it is. Yeah. You would think it's some kind of weird torture. Right. But we think it's balmy. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, she's in southeast England where she lives with her violin maker husband and two dogs. I mean, you know, that sounds like a very idyllic lifestyle, a writer <laughs> and a violin maker. Husband. You obviously haven't been here, <laughs> especially during lockdown. Okay, so tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me how you came to writing. Uh, I think my favourite... go way back. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, that my kind of favourite way to answer this question is... It's probably quite hopeful for a lot of parents and a lot of children that when I was a child, I was a fearful fibber and I fibber. could not. Oh, you were going to say reader. I was, I was a really devoted reader. You know, I, 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 and I was very lucky. My parents were both teachers and were equally devoted to reading. So yeah. I was allowed to read through meals and things that some people might think were rude. But if it was a book, you were just allowed to read it. it. Didn't matter where you were. What That's you a did. good exemption, I reckon. Yeah, I think so yeah. too. But um, no, I, I just told lies all the time, all the time. I was mean, that because talk, it was your imagination? You were just making up things all the time. <laughs> Actually, I think it was probably to do with insecurity and being very. I'm one of those people who's very shy but very outgoing. <laughs> um, 
So I'll get think, my head around that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was to do with that and to do with all, and thinking, always thinking that everybody else was a bit better than me. So if I invented a bigger one or a, you know an older one, then I would I would I could trump that story. So as as a friend of mine says, if you've got the unicorn, I've got the box it came in. So, so as a child, I, I just, I got into so much trouble all the time because I just couldn't tell the truth. And I think that, yeah, the truth just wasn't interesting enough. No, I so so I lied and then I carried on and now yeah. I make a living from it. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Uh, so you weren't jailed or anything during that time? <laughs> no, I did actually oh. manage to escape being jailed. Oh, you do. No, things like I don't know, just things like I remember there was a girl in my class who had two older brothers who were much older. I think you know, I, I must have been about eight or nine, and her bro- and she was too, and her brothers were in their twenties. And so I just invented two brothers in their twenties, and not that you taught- made them. No, because I, I was jealous of hers. I just decided to oh, have two you're myself. Right. You're right. Yeah, and I okay. and I created whole lives for them and one of them I remember one of them ran a sweet shop that was because that was my like ideal profession that so, I just told everybody about them as if they were real so I guess you could have either have become a writer or a psychopath one or the other. yeah and, that, yeah. and the more writers I meet the more I realize those those two professions are very closely aligned <laughs> yeah. so what point did you look back and notice that you were fibbing did, was that a conscious kind of thing no, I don't think I realised no. till I was, you know, really old. <laughs> like, I was going to say till I was an adult. Then I realised that you're an adult when you're 18 and I was definitely still at it then. Yeah, wow. So on a serious note, do you think you were kind of storytelling then? Like you were making definitely. up characters and, yeah. Yeah, in the kind of theory of creative writing, we tell stories in order to order our world and yeah. to make sense of the world. And in that in that kind of um idea it's the same as maths it's about logic and it's also about conveying these um community truths particularly in uh, populations where things aren't written down you know you 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 get to good governance and to history via storytelling that's what you do so I think I just had that kind of primal need to tell stories and I think a lot of us do to make Mm. sense of our world so when you finished school, what did you study? Did you go to university? Did you study? Did you think you I wanted was, to be I somewhere? was expelled from school. All right. <laughs> so I didn't. No, I am um, actually, here's another word of warning to parents. I was a year ahead of the year I was supposed to be in because I was quite a bright child. And so I'd moved up into the next year. And actually, when all my friends were 15, I was 14. And there's a world of difference between a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old. So I was very immature. But actually, it wasn't immature. It was just a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, I, and I behaved as such And in the end. When my friends had all left school to go on to college to do their A-levels, I wasn't allowed to leave because I was too young to leave school. So I had to stay behind and do another year. So I kind of made sure during that year that I didn't have to stay for the whole thing. And so what did you do to get expelled? Oh, I went to a very strict school. So all I did actually was wear an army jacket 
to school. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was it. Um, so I didn't. That's I didn't disappointing. To, I know it's sad, isn't it? I'm also, as well as being very shy extrovert, I'm also very conformist, non-conformist. So I didn't go to university or anything like that. I went out into the world of work. I worked as a lifeguard first, and then I worked for what? riding for the disabled. A lifeguard for, at beaches. Uh, no, in a swimming pool. Oh, wow. We, we don't have so many lifeguards at beaches. We have more nowadays, but I don't think we had any when I was 16. And then I worked for Riding for the Disabled, and then I worked as a swimming teacher, and then eventually, uh, and I had my kids, I went to university when I was in my 30s. And so um, were you writing during that time? At what point did you start? I've, I'd always written, and I think during that time I definitely used to write poetry really embarrassing Adrian Mole kind of introspective style poetry I don't think I wrote stories so much but I guess I had small children and you don't really have time to write stories when you have small children and I'd always kept a diary as well was another form of writing and I just knew I, I knew I wanted to be a writer and then I was kind of in small children and then I was a single parent and doing my degree and then my postgraduate studies and what did you, know, you study well oddly for my first degree I did business uh, business and finance because I was a single parent and so I felt I looked at the tables for graduate wage earners and the highest graduate wage earners were people with business degrees at that time so I did business just to kind of feed my family <laughs> and then I moved from business into teaching I did a second degree in teaching then and you then, went right down the scale of earning <laughs> Yeah, definitely, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's the same in Australia as it is yes. in England. And then I um, then I did a creative writing master's many years later. I only did right. that about nine or ten years ago. No, eleven about eleven years ago I did that. Yeah. So when did you publish your first book, and how did you publish it? Ah, oh, do you know I published in the very early days of the internet. Very lucky. One of my brothers is a absolute internet master and he, yeah he works in IT and in the very early days of the internet I published my first novel in episodes online oh wow um luckily it doesn't exist anymore because <laughs> my brother's very good at things like that too it's interesting because I was absolutely certain that novel was ready for publication you know I'd given it my all I'd invested everything in it and I'd sent it out to agents and lots of agents had written back to me and said you know you've definitely got something got a good voice blah, 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 but it's not for me it's you know you need to keep going and and I just I just literally didn't believe it and so I published this book online and then now oh, I'm so glad it's not there mm-hmm. because you know as you carry on learning which you do mm-hmm. with something like writing you really realize oh yeah it, it, it did have something it was very funny it had a great plot actually but you know the writing ouch I'm so glad that those, a lot of the time when you are rejected for these things and you know you can't find an agent or you can't find a publisher, it's just part of your journey. And I think it's so important for, for people who want to write to remember that, mm-hmm. that, that you wouldn't expect, if you're a carpenter, you wouldn't expect to suddenly go into a cathedral and build a new staircase. You would expect to start on a cupboard mm-hmm. in the back room, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and so I think people get very disheartened when they're writing by rejection, but they shouldn't. I think you've really touched on something because in the time that I've been recording these podcasts, I've probably spoken to about 
oh, over 300 writers. And what I have learned, which I didn't know prior to speaking to writers, was there's a lot of practice. Now, that actually makes sense because if you speak to musicians, they're practicing for yeah. hours. And so, absolutely. And so, there are professional a- musicians are literally playing for six hours a day in their yeah. 60s. Yeah. You know, and they've been doing it since they were five. Yeah, and very often people write their first book and they think, well, that's it, I've, I've nailed it. But they don't, I think that that notion of practice is really important in writing because I think yeah. very often it gets overlooked. Because, you know, often the media only jump on those, you know, he's 16 and he wrote a novel and sold a million copies. Well, that happens in one in 100 million. Not yeah, in- my, my first agent, who's very wise, she said to me that most people who's, who sell their first novel it's their fifth novel. Yes. The average is five. And know that when you're standing at the bottom of the mountain looking up, that seems impossible that you mm. could that you could do that. But the fact that you can recycle all of that material and Leo, who's the the hero of the Museum of Forgotten Memories, he was actually in that very, very first novel of mine. Mm. But he was called Sam. Oh, wow. And I knew that he would always have kind yeah. of his own novel that he would be important in, but I didn't know what it would be and I didn't know that he would have to wait because I wrote that first novel in about 1999, 2000. So. I forgot to say in the introduction, we got distracted because we got talking. <laughs> but we are here to talk about the Museum of Forgotten Memories, which is your new book, so thank you for pointing that out to me. That's all right, it wasn't <laughs> deliberate. I too had forgotten We'll get there. So what was your first published book and how did that come about? Uh, My first published book was The Truths and Triumphs of Grace Atherton, which is actually about a violin maker, but it's about a cello maker. So that came about, it's hard to say without spoilers, but the the kind of the, the situation in which that book is set is something that I wanted to write about for a long time. Actually, I, I think I'll just say it because it does have the chapter that reveals this on Amazon so you can, readers can find it. But it's about a woman who's having an affair with a married man, The Truths and Trance of Grace Atherton. And the reason that I wanted to write about that is that I find societally, I think when somebody has an affair with a married man, we always blame the woman. Oh, we would say like, oh, she, you know, she led him astray or she was determined to get that guy or what could he do? She had her claws in him, etc. We never give the responsibility to the man. We never just say, you're a grown up. Why did you do that? And so I, I wanted to look at what makes women settle for that, settle for being second best part of a harem, if you like. And what what we can do as women, as kind of sisters, to support people or to understand what has happened to somebody to make them, to put them in that position where they would agree to be treated so very badly. And that sounds kind of simplistic, but that was the base idea of the novel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So how did you get it published? Through the very traditional route of of hanging on to it for about 12 years, crying and rocking backwards and forwards. (laughs) I did actually write part of that novel for my master's in I just think I think my master's was in 2008 but the novel that I wrote for that had two characters and I eventually years later I split that book in two and I took each of the characters and gave them their own books so I mean this is kind of the process of writing isn't putting words on a page and then writing the end afterwards, that's how you begin. But after that, then you have to see how you can take characters, take situations, move them somewhere else, rebuild and make something so much better out of those original ideas. So the book that I'm writing for my third novel is actually the other character from that master's. So in fact, all three, Grace, who's the the character in The Truths and Trance of Grace Atherton, she's from my first novel, Leo in the Museum from, of Forgotten Memories is from my very, 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 very first novel. And then Judith, now in my third novel, is um, also from that master's novel. So that, I hope that's a good kind of example of how writers just recycle and reuse and repurpose. And for the reader, it's just completely fresh. Yes. And also, I think, because if you know a character that well, and you've been through other situations with them and so on, you can you can then present them to the reader as somebody really whole and really meaty and understandable and relatable because by that time you've been with them so long they actually exist well I was going to kind of bring that back to fibbing (laughs) (laughs) it all comes back to fibbing don't you think because you know those people as if they're real literally yeah yeah there is an element of that I think I, I read somewhere writers and I presume also artists and so on often end up um, thinking like people like Hemingway or having um, a an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or drugs or whatever because they can access the imagination very very easily and they slip between the reality of every day and this portion of your brain that really produces things that don't exist and because you can slip between those two worlds so easily, that's how people end up in these kind of difficult situations with drug abuse and so on. When, But I don't know if it's true. I don't know if more writers end up like that than non-writers. But, but I do sometimes talk to people who look quite puzzled when I'm explaining to them about... <laughs> I, but I didn't do that. I didn't know that character was going to do it. They did it themselves. I do hear that a lot from authors. There's a friend of mine, Michael Robotham, who's a great crime writer, and he told me one time that Vivian often says to him, are you with her? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Is that brilliant? Oh, it's so, it's so true. And you do, you, you can sit there with your friends and you're just thinking, oh, I just need to go and sort this out. Especially if you leave somebody. I just recently, in fact, was teaching some 
still teaching during lockdown I'm teaching I don't teach at the university anymore I just teach my own with my own company now and the benefit of lockdown for me is I've now got students who had wanted to write with me for a long time but couldn't because they were too far away and now we're all on zoom yeah um yeah so and I was on zoom the other day one of my my novel writing group is three hours long on a Wednesday and and I just left my poor character, 17 years old, in a city miles and miles from home in the pouring rain, just standing there in a summer coat. And I was just thinking, I I'll can't do this. <laughs> I can't teach you. I'm so sorry, this poor girl. And yeah. sort of every time they did a writing exercise, I was furtively trying to move her into a doorway where she wouldn't get so wet. Because you were worried about it. Talking about leaving characters behind... It does happen to a reader. I was reading Lee Still Alice by Lisa Genova and it's about a woman that has Alzheimer's. It's and she's only in her fifties and she was a professor and and Lisa I think has a science background, so it was really compelling read. Dreadfully sad. But I had to go somewhere and she was making her way home and was getting lost. And for me to put that book down, yeah. I was worried all afternoon about how she was going to get home. But it just writing. means it's fabulous writing. Yeah, absolutely. That you are so part of that story world that mm. you just can't leave it. And that's, you are supposed to kind of intend when you're writing for your, your story world to exist before your reader joins you and to continue to exist when they've left. I had a lovely text the other day from a friend about the Museum of Forgotten Memories, and she said, my mum wants to know what happens after the end. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> so I sent her mum back a really long, detailed text about, <laughs> well, there was a bottle of wine and something <laughs> happened. And her mum just sent a text back via Amy saying, well, thank you so much. That's exactly what I wanted to happen. So I want to talk about aging and writing like I I have noticed it took a long time for this to dawn on me but I've noticed that if I you follow a writer for instance like Gabriel Garcia Marquez right he's one Uh of my favorite and if you were to read a book that was written in his 20s it's not that the craft is different because of course it is because you learn so much as you're writing but also the story is as well, because it's yeah. the perspective of us in our 20s, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it has Sally Rooney's Normal People been yes. a big, yes. yeah, it's huge here and a, yes. and a fantastic TV adaptation, which everybody loves. But I think she's a rarity because I don't want to sound patronising to people in their 20s because they have a great story to tell too, but yes. it's very different to people in their 50s and I think the thing that you learn comes back to that happiness is available you just have to find it it comes back you don't realize until you're very very much older how much your happiness is your responsibility no matter how dire the situation that sounds really cruel that sounds like a a, a very strong thing to say but I don't mean it in a critical sense I mean that you can find happiness in tiny places yes and moments of silence and literally in one ray of sunshine or one snail shell in your garden that you don't so much when you're younger you're busy and you're frenetic and you're so you're busy finding yourself and you and you think happiness is big and you're looking for yeah yeah you do think happiness is huge and also I think the older you get the more you know about other people and the more stories you know the more secrets you know and the more experiences you have seen people have and I think you just become far more forgiving 
and understanding. I'm a big fan of Paul Oster and you know him, the American writer from New York. I do. I was, when I went to Holland looking for my for, for The Truths and Triumphs of Grace Atherton in a bookshop, I was on the same shelf as Paul Oster. Wow. You can't imagine how many wow. photographs I took. <laughs> Well, <laughs> was just doing panoramas of this shelf. So <laughs> the first minutes. book uh, that I can remember, was it New York, New York, or was it what's the first? Anyway, yeah. and then maybe 10 years ago, I saw him at the Adelaide Writers' Festival, and he, of course, was a lot older, and he was talking about his new book, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was about sharing a house with his daughter and her child and being a grandparent. And for me, that was a light bulb moment because I just always thought he was so cool, you know. He was one of that cool set writers and, of course, cool people age as well and (laughs) the life that they're living is very different. And the coolest of people accept that they've aged. And still write beautifully about hearing their grandchildren's footsteps. You know, and that's what touches on happiness, isn't it? Because if you had said that to him 30 years ago, that that's what he's going to be writing about and probably be very happy with, he would never have believed you. No, no, because like you say, happiness comes from different places, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm really interested in the, like if I was a writer and I'm not, that would be what I would write about, the evolution of a writer. Yeah. Yeah. I think the evolution of a writer is kind of similar to the evolution of a human being. Yeah. You know, so much of your later life, I think, as well, is spent understanding your younger self and not even forgiving them because, because not those crimes either. weren't crimes, you know. No. Yeah, not having regrets. No. So looking looking at your younger self and saying, well, would I have thought my own child was awful for doing that? No, of course no. I wouldn't. No. I would, I'd, be, I'd be understanding about it and so I can be understanding about myself. And, I, and it, for me as well, most of my books and my stories are based on kernels of ideas or nuggets of ideas that my friends have lived. So it will be a situation that occurs to one of my friends and always with permission, yeah. if yeah. it's recognisable, that just makes me think, gosh, you know, there's so much to explore in that. There's, there's more sides to that situation than we might see and you need to look into it. So tell us about the Museum of Forgotten Memories. And I can see that you're a bit partial to long titles. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, the title, this book didn't really, I don't think, ever have a title. So the title was kind of really up for grabs. And titles is one of my worst things. So Lucky we've got good publishers. <laughs> literally. So I, I didn't write the title. The title in Australia and the US is the Museum of Forgotten Memories. But in the UK, it's called Where We Belong. Ah, I did not know Um, that. Yeah. So uh, I think because in the UK, we're moving away from longer titles. They're petering out, if you like. Whereas Is that because you've got shorter memories than us? Yeah, I think lockdown's (laughs) affected us all very badly. Could be be that prime minister. (laughs) Yeah, we're too busy ranting to actually hold (laughs) any information, unfortunately. Uh, not that our ranting gets us anywhere. So it's just different markets in different countries. But I did get an email from a reader in America about, because the Truths and Triumphs of Grace Atherton in America was called Goodbye Paris. Uh, in Australia, it's the Truths and Triumphs of Grace Atherton. And I got an email from an American reader saying that she would never again trust me as an author because she'd bought both books by mis- like she hadn't realised she'd liked 
did by Paris so much she'd ordered the Truths and Triumphs of Grace Atherton from the UK and then discovered it was the same book, which is awful. I feel really bad for her, but I'm not quite sure where I will never again trust you as an author came in. Well, <laughs> she thought you deceived her. She could have always have gifted it. Well, yeah, that's yeah. true. She could. So the, the titles thing is interesting how they, they change them for different markets. So the Museum of Forgotten Memories is based on an incredible museum, which is near my house called the Powell Cotton Museum. And there's a little write up, I think, in the beginning of the book yes. yeah. about the real museum. And the really interesting thing about talking to better reading is that I've been going to this museum since I was three when my parents first moved to this area. And I I just love it. And and now my grandchildren love it, which is amazing. And one day, and I'd always had this idea, because I'm adopted, I always had this idea, maybe I was part of their family, and I'll find my natural family, and there'll be the Powell Cottons who own this museum, and I can go and live there. And one day I was in the museum, and there was a group of people and a, a woman chatting who's Australian, and she was asking people for their stories of the museum. And she turns out to be Susan Johnson, who's now a very oh. good friend of mine. She's yes. the great granddaughter of Percy Powell Cotton. And the author, and she, Susan Johnson? No, she's not no. an author. No. Oh, okay. No, that's a different yeah. person. And yeah. she moved from Australia to the UK with her kids to occupy her great grandfather's wow. museum, which no longer, I mean, she doesn't actually live in the museum, but she did used to live in a flat above it. Now she lives in the grounds. But there was no family left to live on the estate, which is run by a trust. And it was kind of really sad that there was no family there. There was nobody to link the past to the present, you know, and explain things and so on. So Susan went to live there. And that was about eight years ago, I think. And she's still there. In fact, I'm going for a walk, a a socially distanced walk with her this morning uh, around the grounds of the museum. So Kate... In the, in the book is a woman at the very, very end of her tether. She has found herself absolutely no, no fault of her own, homeless. Not that it's very rarely anybody's fault. Uh, she's homeless. And the biggest concern for her is that that means her son, Leo, is also homeless. And they have a connection, a loose connection to her husband's grandfather's museum, where within the terms of the trust, there is always a home there for the direct descendant of Colonel Hugo, who put the museum together. So Kate and Leo pack up their London flat and they move to a very peculiar museum in the middle of nowhere. Well, that's a British middle of nowhere. So it's in a town, not an Australian middle of nowhere. Um, And um, yeah, they move to a sleepy seaside town from London where they've been very happy. And they are greeted by an old family retainer who does nothing to make them welcome or help them. And they discover very quickly that the museum is actually about to close. And it's a story of whether Kate and Leo can firstly save the museum, whether they can ever tame Araminta, the old family retainer, and whether they can ever call it home. It's really a beautiful story. So this story came from Susan's story for you? No, no. This story... Gosh, I don't know where this story came from. This story, it contains a few issues that I um, really wanted to write about So, and have wanted to write about for a long time. So Leo, the hero, he, I don't know whether to spoiler this or not. It's, I'm not sure. Oh, that's a difficult one. 
I think I will. I think yeah. I will because yeah. it's not that yeah. important in the sense of the story. But Leo has a learning disability. He's a young adult with a learning disability. And I, for a very long time, wanted to write a story about somebody who has a learning disability where their learning disability is nothing to do with their story. So what happens to them and what goes on in the book would be exactly the same, yeah. whether they had a learning disability or not. So it sees past their disability. And in Leo's case, actually, there are things that Leo can do and understand that are benefits he has because of his different ability. And it goes past that and it looks at them as a person. And, yeah. and I think that's so missing in fiction. Oh, I can't tell you. I was talking to a writer yesterday about the very same thing. She has a child with autism and she tries to write characters and her I think her son was even called Leo. And <laughs> yeah, her real life son. Yeah. And she's, she writes stories for young adults where they just happen. It's not the story is not that Leo has autism. The story is yeah. the story and the character has, happens to have autism. But we're also recording a podcast at the moment, a podcast series on diversity in children's books where um, I want to see that more and more in women's fiction. In Yeah, if we have it more in women's fiction and people begin to understand, oh, yeah, just because you, exactly. you, know, you kind of identify differently, you're exactly the same as me, then perhaps we will demand it in our children's fiction. When, you know, what I was talking to about yesterday was often you're not seeing the diversity. You're not seeing, say, somebody like me, the Lebanese-Australian in the story, and you're not seeing the Vietnamese-Australian or the Chinese-Australian. Yeah. And I'm thinking it's impossible that those authors don't know those people because, yeah, you know, absolutely. in this country particularly, it's so diverse. Why are we writing them out? Why aren't they yeah. written in? In the UK, we still have, I don't know about Australia, but we still have that kind of tokenism where if yeah. you, in a soap opera, if a character is gay, the fact that they are gay is their story. Exactly. And ditto if it's they have a learning them. disability, yeah. it's their story, which yeah. is just nonsense. Yeah. And so I, for me, it was so important to write that somebody with a learning disability still can get involved in a yeah. bitter love triangle and have a broken heart and they all this. And, and uh, so that, yeah, for me, that was one of the greatest kind of, triumphs of this book is that I feel I, I I actually have two friends one who's a, a professor of learning disabilities and one who is a special needs teacher but also has a son who's now in his mid-20s who has special needs and so I asked both of them to read the book at the end and just to be sure that yeah. I was representing Leo fairly and clearly and I've said in the acknowledgements that I wanted to thank the two of them for agreeing to speak for Leo before I discovered that he had absolutely his own voice and he didn't need anybody to speak for him. And so I do feel that Leo speaks for himself in the oh, book. Oh, I think it's spot on, spot on. And then the other thing in the book that I wanted to investigate and look at was depression, that mm. so many people are living with depression, living with people who have depression. And that very fact that there are no answers and there's no shortcuts. Mm. And it's just something that, how do I you have to it? live with and some people can't live with that whether they are people living alongside people with depression or people themselves with depression and I really wanted to investigate that and represent that without any kind of just without how it's represented in a soap opera and you know, I wanted to represent it as real life because mm. it is for so many people.
And they're the people we know. I could go on <laughs> for hours. We I need my breakfast. <laughs> but I've got to let you go to have your breakfast and to go for your walk. Thank you so much. For, for oh, thank you for asking me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.